everybody. This is Tina again with Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. And I have a special treat for you guys this week. You will remember that a few weeks ago, we had Tom and Ben with Just Some Podcast on. They were so funny. I enjoyed having them. And they are advanced, they're nurse practitioners, advanced practice nurses. And Tom's wife is a respiratory therapist. And as you guys know, I've been dying to have a respiratory therapist on for the past three years that I've been doing this podcast. And so Megan, his wife, just very graciously agreed to come on and do an episode with me. Hello, Megan. Hello. So good to have you. Megan and I just had an amazing conversation that I'm going to put as like a little bonus thing on our website for you guys. If you want to hear a conversation, just a nice casual conversation between Megan and myself about respiratory therapy and what respiratory therapists do and just that whole profession and talking about working at the bedside, you know, together and with providers and all. It's just, we had an amazing conversation. I really enjoyed it. So that's going to be there for you guys just if you want to go listen to that. And I really appreciate Megan for doing that. Thank you. And it's great. Good. Well, we have an interesting story today. I've done at least one other, like a bad respiratory therapist episode, but this one I thought, you know, it's kind of hard to find certain professions in the news because I think a lot of news media like reporters don't maybe grasp like the who the person was and they probably wouldn't necessarily say, you know, respiratory therapist did this or that. So it's harder to kind of comb the internet and find specific stories about RTs, but I found this one and it's it's really sickening and I will just have to give a little trigger warning at the at the beginning. I try to do that whenever it's something that's really super sensitive and this really is very sensitive. There is uh, child abuse. There is sexual abuse. It's quite disturbing. But as I always say, we the whole point of this podcast or, or part of the reason we do this is to try to shine a light in the darkness of the things that people can do. I think we all have to be aware that there are monsters out there. And some of them, unfortunately, get into the medical field and are working at the bedside with our loved ones, with our patients. And we need to be aware that this sort of thing happens and not just like turn our eyes away as if and pretend like it doesn't. That doesn't help anyone. So we're going to tackle this story as disgusting and sickening as it is. You made me think of something. I always, my son's always oh, I'm scared of monsters. I'm scared of monsters. I'm like, monsters don't exist. The only monsters are humans in this world. And I, I know it's very crappy, but I mean, it's the truth. It's and true. So, uh, so I'm like, you have to be careful. Yeah. Most people go into the medical field because they like to help people. They want to do things to help other people. Then to find out that there are people in it who are literally, in, they enjoy hurting other people. That is horrifying. It's so scary to me. Yeah. Or the reason they went into it was that specific reason was to, you know, Mm -hmm. hurt somebody. I I mean, right. So I just want you to know that that is what we're going to be kind of tackling today. So if that's something that is just a little too sensitive for you, just be sure and skip over this one or maybe skip to maybe skip to the good story because we do have a nice respiratory therapist story to tell. And then we have something new that we're going to be doing uh, on the show. We're going to start that uh, start this week with doing a new segment. And it's going to be after the good nurse story. And it's going to be a, a news segment, but it's going to be satire. So just so you know that it is satire, we're not going to be talking about it as if it's supposed to be funny. 
And so I, I, I think it's going to be interesting because people that are that don't pay attention to me saying this now, <laughs> later on, they're probably just going to be like, what in the world? But I love satire. I love to make a joke out of something. So it's going to be so much fun. So we're going to start that today. And we have a really good satire article. So the bad nurse story or the bad respiratory therapist story for this week is about a man by the name of Wayne Albert Blail. He lived with his wife, Diane, in a suburb of San Diego in California. He was a registered respiratory therapist for over 25 years, and he worked at Rady Children's Hospital, where he started working back in the 1980s. So for the last 10 years of his career, he worked in a convalescent unit. And he had a very good reputation with his colleagues. He was a mentor on the unit. I, I would imagine he was probably someone who trained others just from what, what I understand. He worked a lot of overtime. His colleagues thought he was extremely helpful. Do you guys call someone who trains someone else like a, a preceptor? Yeah. Is that, is that a, mm-hmm. yeah. you have like preceptors? Okay. So wouldn't you imagine that? Yeah. Someone in his, that has been a respiratory therapist that long. Yeah, he probably trained people. Yeah. And I mean, if he had so much spare time on his hands, you know, I mean, it, mm-hmm. you would think that, yeah, he was probably, you know, supposed to be training somebody or, mm-hmm. you know, precepting something. Right. That's what I was wondering, especially when it said that he was a mentor. It just made me think, you know, someone that probably trained other respiratory therapists. Mm-hmm. In 2006... The San Diego Internet Crimes Against Children's Task Force received a tip. And so investigators traced internet sharing networks that contained child pornography back to his house. And they found tens of thousands of pornographic and lewd images, including ones that he had taken of himself abusing patients. So just to clarify, someone found the images of him abusing unconscious children. Oh gosh, it's so horrible horrible to even say these words, but they found them online because he had posted them there for anyone to see. Um, so not only had he taken advantage of, advantage of children, but he shared the actual abuse you know, on, on the internet. It's just so disgusting. So for at least a decade, he used his position and took advantage of the trust of those people around him. And I think about parents, the guilt. At children's, like children's hospitals, you know, you only have visiting time at specific, you know, specific hours, like two to three hours out of the day, depending on, you know, how sick the kid is or, you know, whatever the hospital rules. So they could only be there probably three or four hours at most. And so then that whole other 20 hours, the child was by themselves or, you know, in the hands of, you know, the hospital employees. Yeah, and we're going to talk a little bit later about some of those rules, and uh, I want to get I want to discuss that a little bit after we kind of get through, manage to somehow get through this story. I just I kind of want to like just get it out, and then just I want to discuss it. It's just hard to get these details out; they're just so horrible. So he abused countless children under the age of fourteen. He targeted children that were not able to speak for themselves either because they were physically unable to speak or because they were too scared to say anything. And so when investigators confronted him about what they had found, he did not try to deny it. He didn't try to hide it. And so they asked him about the extent of the abuse that he had inflicted and wanted to know, you know how many victims do you think maybe there were? And at the time, he happened to be looking out a window 
and it was snowing. And he said that there were as many victims as snowflakes he could see falling at the time. So many, he has no idea. Like he couldn't even count probably, yeah. Mm -hmm. Because it went on for so long. And he said if he had to guess, he would say half of the children that he cared for. And remember, he said that that he picked up a lot of overtime. So he worked a lot. And respiratory therapists tend to have a lot of patients and have access to a lot of patients, tend to be have a lot of patients just sort of that they are responsible for because some of them, they might just be on a nasal cannula and they don't have to do a whole lot, but they're still their quote patient and they need to round on them and document how much O2 they're on. And and then some, they you know need to give breathing treatments. But sometimes, as we said, when we were talking before the show, just like with nurses, there's a staffing shortage and they have more patients than they really should safely be able to, you know, to take care of. It just happens. So there's no telling how many, there just really is no telling how many patients. Yeah. I mean, it's normal for us to have like three floors or four floors at a time. And so, I mean, if you have mm-hmm. 40 people on each floor, I mean, that's... Yeah. And he's got 12, you know, if he works 12 hour shifts, right. And you have 12 hours to be in and out of different rooms and and get to know which rooms don't have parents in there or that, to I don't know, maybe I, I would imagine him doing as long as he had, he figured out a way to know patterns where he would know if the nurses were going to be in there or not. So it was just really hard to imagine, but I, it seems like for him to have gotten away with this as long as he did, and he didn't even get caught at the hospital. So he had to have had some way to be very careful and understand the patterns of like the nurses and other people that are in and out of these rooms. But somehow he was able to get away with this. So police arrested him and held him on a $5 million bond. But for some reason, the judge rescinded it later at some point. I never understand these things. I've been doing these stories week in and week out for almost three years. I I cannot tell you how many times I've said, but the judge, you know, later, I uh, I don't I'll never understand our criminal justice system. It's perplexing to me. There's always gray area everywhere. So. But rather than face, well, there is, and it's, I understand it. We're supposed to be innocent until proven guilty, but still it does seem as, seems odd, you know, yes. when you have so much evidence. It does. Well, rather than face a, a full trial, Wayne took a plea deal and he admitted to eight counts of forcible lewd acts upon a child and four counts of exhibiting a minor in pornography. So only a few of the victims were actually identified and several parents made statements at his sentencing his victims were almost always comatose, incapacitated, and or nonverbal children. And one of the most heartbreaking statements came from Janice Frost, the mother of a victim who died just a few months after his arrest. She said, I was unable to protect her as a mother from a man like you. And another mother, Lillian Godfrey, who also lost her daughter, said, I just want you to know it doesn't matter what you say or how many years you spend in jail. It's not going to be enough. I don't think you have a soul you're just an empty human shell. And CBS printed another story. In court, Pandora Johnson said she had asked her son, who cannot speak because of a breathing device in his throat. That's usually what the way the media 
or people who don't really understand medical usually refer to a trach, I think. But in court, she said that when Pandora Johnson said that she asked her son, who cannot speak because of a breathing device in his throat, whether he had been abused, he didn't give his usual yes or no sign. He just looked afraid, she said. And when I said, Wayne will never do this to you again, he gave me a big smile. And she said that just smile broke my heart because it, you know, it was yeah. just so apparent. Yeah, it's awful. Investigators also uncovered that a colleague of Wayne's also had been committing similar crimes. A man by the name of Christopher Irvin, who was a nurse, was sentenced to 14 years and eight months for molesting a toddler. Christopher Allen Irvin worked at Rady's Children's Hospital there and was found to have, like I said, molested a comatose toddler. He was 32 years old at the time. He pled guilty. And when asked about his crimes, he said, I suffer because I crave this and try to satisfy it. I mean, I'm sorry, but Mm -hmm. even if that's true and you have some sickness that causes you to feel this way, you don't have to work around children. Yeah. You have control of that. So as a result, the hospital banned camera phones in certain areas and enhanced anti-abuse measures. And one would hope so. Yeah. In July 2007, shortly after being sentenced, the California Respiratory Care Board, Department of Consumer Affairs, ordered that he surrender his license. The written order showed that he fully admitted to all the charges against him in the board's proceedings. And as I said earlier, camera phones were banned from the convalescent unit and curtains are supposed to remain open most of the time. I don't know what most of the time means. I would yeah. I would hope that that would mean that unless there's another person in there, like a witness, that you would not be able to. I've said that before. Yeah. Not just about children, about any anyone. Yeah. You know? There's still at least one victim, a two-year-old, that investigators couldn't identify out of the known five from images found on his computer. So, I mean, really the extent of the damage that he has done is is not known. It can't be known because it go it reaches so far just from the mental abuse that he caused from all of the children and then that is a chain that causes a chain reaction because those children because of PTSD it's going to cause it, it will change their lives and all of the lives of the people around them. That's just how being a victim, that's what happens yeah. when you're a victim and it, it changes you and you can't help it. I had to learn that the hard way. I was a, a victim of child, um, child. I had a trauma in, in my childhood and it was something that when I got older, as I became an adult, I was. I just decided I was a very strong person and I was not going to be a victim and I wasn't going to let it change who I was or make who I was. And so I didn't deal with it. Like I didn't get therapy and I just kind of like just was, I tried to be strong and I don't think that most people would know that, well, I know that most people would know that something horrible happened to me as, as a child. And then as a long time went on at some point, not too long ago, really, I did start going to therapy and then realized that I don't have any control over that. And it's it's just part part of life. You can't help when someone else decides to come into your life and impact it in that way. And so it can make you a stronger person. It can make you 
more aware, but it's going to change something. your course. Yeah. It just is. Yeah. So the extent of his damage is definitely, there is no way to know the damage that's, that it's caused, but make no mistake that it is permanent lifelong damage that these children and their family and all of the people, and dare I say, I mean, the people, the other respiratory therapists yeah. that worked around him, the guilt they must have felt. Imagine if you're the respiratory therapist and he picked up your shift or yep. uh, like, and he was like, oh, I'll go medicate your patient. I'll go give that breathing treatment. And you, I, I would, that would mess with my head so much. Yeah. I, it would be really hard to Like it was your fault with. That, that, yeah. Mm-hmm. And of course it's not, of course. No. But you're, you know, you can't help your, your brain just wants to go, oh my gosh, what if I just not done this or that? And the thing is you can't control other people's actions. Yep. And so I right wonder, now Wayne faced 160. I was wondering, yeah. like, do you think the only reason he like pled guilty was because of the pictures? Yes, I think that the the pictures were so damning, and there was no way he could get out of it. And it, he, if he had not pled guilty, he would have had to go through a trial, and all of that would have been exposed, and his family would have had to have been put through that and he would have all of the statements everything would have been out in the open in the public on in, in court tv publicized yeah. even worse than it was yeah yeah and only to know that he is going to be convicted he knew there was no way he wasn't going to be convicted so yeah. he really didn't have a choice yeah he was sentenced to 45 years and eight months with time served and guaranteed that he would serve 85% of it, even with good behavior, which I, I never understand the good behavior thing either. Mm-mm. So he's 66 right now, currently still in prison in Chino, Ohio, uh, Chino, California. If he's released after 39 years for good behavior, he will be in his 90s. Well, I so hope he dies before there then. There haven't been any further. Well, I, I'm sorry, surely, but I'm, I mean, yeah. Yeah. I just, I don't know why he just didn't yeah, he doesn't, know, get life in prison or... I just, I know it, it just seems like he has a sense. light like, at the end of the tunnel, and I'm like, no, he shouldn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't think he deserves to see the light of day, Mm-mm. and and I I do believe that I believe in redemption, and I believe that people can change, and I believe that people can you know recognize bad behavior and stop doing it and become a better person. But I also believe in consequences, and if you've done something so incredibly horrible to people, you should not be allowed to see the light of day, no. period. You know, if, you're, if you've changed your mind, if your mind is, you know, if you've been able to overcome that somehow and you do have remorse, great. Yeah. It doesn't undo, it doesn't undo like, anything. It doesn't change. Hopefully he would be castrated or something. I don't know. But it's just like, you know, when you have sexual predators like that, like... And they say they can't, I know they can control their actions, but they say they can't. Okay, well, then let's take steps so you won't have to worry about it anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I wonder if anyone has ever chosen to do that, like electively. Yes. Yeah. I don't um, know. I don't, I've never. I actually watched a documentary a few years ago. There were like two or three guys and they were actually talking about it. And one had a surgical castration, but the other two were on um, medicine too. So yeah, but it's hard to, to not have the yeah. urges. And to not get like an erection, I guess. So, it, you know. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, the guy that said, uh, the guy that had surgery said it was my only option. Like I knew nothing else would work. So this way I just don't have an option. 
I was like, wow. Like, I mean, he took responsibility wow. and I was like, nice. Like, Yeah. I appreciate that. I appreciate that that person just took ownership of that and decided to do something about it rather than saying, oh, I, it's just something I suffer with because I don't have control over it. So I go and get a job at a children's hospital yeah. where children don't have, you know, are completely incapacitated. I guess you know, if it was like crazy. him, like being an alcoholic and, oh, I can't control how much I drink. Okay, well, you're only hurting yourself. Go ahead. Well, mm-hmm. you can't just do that and hurt everybody else around you. Like, you know what I mean? You can't like when you're affecting families and families and, you know, hundreds, thousands, I'm sure. Over 25 years, I'm sure. Yeah, yes. thousands. Yes. I, you know... He never admitted, um, or, or sorry, he never attempted to explain himself. Or he, now the other guy, the Christopher Irwin guy that they found incidentally, I guess, just out of investigating this, he said that, you know, he was the one that suffered. But this, but the this guy that we're talking about, Wayne, never attempted to explain himself or say anything about everything that he did. And his his lawyers re- released this like blanket statement, you know, that says he's sorry to the victims and that there's nothing he could ever do to make amends. But that's just the typical things that, you know, people say. He got what he wanted. Mm-hmm. I'm sure he doesn't feel sorry at all. Like, I mean, it was just some yeah. urge he was fulfilling. So it wasn't like they were actual kids or people, I think, to him probably. Yeah. I just wonder... What can be done? I think that there are not enough safety procedures because it's not, like I said earlier, it's not just children that are at risk. There are a lot of patients in the hospital who are vulnerable, who are sedated and don't have a way uh, to talk for themselves. They may be aware of what's going on, but they can't speak up because they're intubated or, you know, they're quote unquote comatose, you know, they're just not able to speak. And sometimes I think they're so vulnerable. And I I I think there needs to be more policies in place to protect people. Yeah, definitely. It I mean, especially when you hear a story like that, like I just feel like, wow, like I mean, we have cam we have cameras in every room. But I mean, I don't know, you know, about other hospitals, you know, what other people do. I don't know. And usually, like, I work in ICU, yeah, so it's I, always, you know, a nurse usually in the room with me because they sit in the room with the patient, so. But, like, on the floors, when you have, like, two nurses for 22 patients, and I'm sure there's plenty of patients in the room by themselves, and when you walk in, you're the only other one in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I've done several stories from different incidences that have happened across the country where it's not just, it's been nurses, doctors, all sorts of different types of professions who've done this sort of thing where they sneak into a room and take advantage of a patient who either was already sedated or they gave them something to sedate them so that they could overpower them. And then the patient ended up remembering it and reporting it. And then they come and find out it's not the first time that it's happened. They're not, it's not their first patient that they've done that to I believe that there needs to be better measures in place. I don't think that most hospitals have cameras in all the rooms. Yeah, we even have them on the floor, Um, like on the floors, like just the medical, regular medical floors. mm -hmm. They're in every room, which is really nice. Do they record? 
Mm-hmm. Or is it just for monitoring? As far as I know, they're recording. Hmm. That's interesting because uh, I've known of some rooms that have cameras in them, but they're just monitor. They're there for monitoring the patient, so they don't actually record. So you can't go back and look at footage. It's just if someone happens to be sitting there monitoring, looking at the monitor, watching someone, which I think would still help because as someone that has sinister motives, it's going to go into a room to try to do something to hurt someone. At least if you know there's a camera there in the room, right. you're going to realize that there's a chance someone could be somewhere watching the monitor. So hopefully that wouldn't happen. I, I, I would be for it myself. Well, I guess we can talk about this good respiratory therapist. This was, did you get a chance to look at this article? It's pretty cool. Yeah, I did. That was awesome. It's from 2016 and it's from the American Association for Respiratory Care website. And they had this article on here and it's uh, about an off-duty respiratory therapist who saves a life on the Florida highway. And his name is Derek Layer. And there's a picture, actually a picture that they somehow snapped of him sitting there holding the man's head. And it just says he was off duty on his way to the beach. And then he saw, you know, all this commotion. He said he saw out of his window people pulling off to the side of the road and frantically getting out of their cars. And so he thought, well, I might be able to help. I'll just go see if any if they need my expertise. And so I always say to people, the respiratory therapists are the A and B of the ABCs. <laughs> <laughs> so... I mean, ABC, if ABCs are the you know most important thing, and that's first and foremost, and that's what you have to take care of first, then respiratory therapists got the first two covered. And so he he gets there and he says it was a motorcycle crash involving only the motorcyclist and left a man lying on the ground in the middle of the highway. So he ran over and said he did a quick assessment, and the victim had a pulse, was breathing, but had a head injury that was causing him to kind of thrash around. You know, I do you I know you've experienced this before yeah. if you have ever worked in an emergency room or seen people with head injuries. Oh yeah. Especially if it's neurological. Yeah. Yeah. And he was the only person with any medical training. And so he said that he basically just started directing around to everyone, like telling, you know, sort of telling people um what to do. There were several other people who had stopped and he told them to hold down his arms and legs. And then he held his cervical spine in place because he recognized that his, since he was breathing and had a pulse, his biggest problem was going to be the possibility of being paralyzed, you know, if you've been in an accident like that. So you want to keep that spine as straight as possible and him moving around is just not good. Yeah. Um, He said he was yelling in agony, thrashing around, so getting people to hold his legs and arms down was necessary for his own st- own safety. And so there wasn't time to really even collect any vitals or do anything like that. He said, all I was worried about was keeping him calm and his blood pressure from elevating due to the nature of his head injury. And see, like, so um, I'm betting, I mean, head injuries, there's usually a ton of blood. So I'm wondering like how they, because yeah. it kind of wasn't mentioned. I'm like, oh, you know, that's kind of why people will freak out a little bit yeah. just because like, oh my gosh, look at all this blood. <laughs> blood everywhere or if there's not blood everywhere that's not actually not yeah, good because yeah. it's probably and the it's probably probably inside. bleeding on the inside and causing in you know pressure yeah mm. which is not good they called 911 but because of where the location because uh, because of the location of the accident it took them a while to get to the scene and so 
they just hung in there and took care of the guy as best they could and um, kept him as stable as they could until paramedics were able to get there. And then he was airlifted to the hospital. And the last that he heard about the man's condition was that he had gone, he had just made it to the hospital. He wasn't sure, you know, what happened after that. But he says helping to rescue the man was quite an experience, but he was happy to be able to put his skills as a respiratory therapist to good use. He said, I've been a registered respiratory therapist for almost five years. And he works in the ED and ICU in Orlando Regional Medical Center in Orlando, Florida. And it's a level one trauma center. He sees critically ill patients and incidents like this daily, which in turn helped prepare him for medical emergencies just like that. So I'm sure he probably sees all sorts of things. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm glad he stopped. I mean, I I always heard a lot of people won't stop because they're scared they might get sued or something might happen. You know what I mean? Um, A lot of states have the Good Samaritan law where if you, and I don't know state to state. I don't either. So there's a lot of people listen to this all over the country, so I never know. But there are a lot of states that do have a Good Samaritan law where if you're trying to help someone that's in distress like that and something happens, you're you're not going to be held accountable as as long as it shows that you were just in good faith, just trying to help. He did say it. It caused some confused looks when they said, oh, are you... Ask him if he was a doctor. Of course, he's a man. They're going to ask if he's a doctor. They're not going to ask if you're a nurse. Yeah. But <laughs> they always assume all the male mm-hmm. doctors are, are... All the male nurses are doctors and all the female doctors are nurses. Yes. Yep. <laughs> he, he said they just looked at him like, "I okay, I don't know what that is, but... Um, he just laughed and said, I love being an RT. <laughs> what is it? They used to call him inhalation. Like sometimes like we get these older people and they're like, oh, are you an inhalation therapist or an inhalation specialist? Oh. I'm like, what the hell is that? Apparently really? that's what they called us prior to us having to like have a degree. Like it was just people that did breathing treatments. Really? Like back in the like 60s and 70s. Yeah. Just breathing treatments. I'm like, yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, so just like nursing, it's evolved. You know, nursing started out like that too, and then, and then over the years, they figured out they can delegate lots of responsibilities <laughs> to us. And then all of a sudden, we're still getting paid what we were before, but yeah. we have all this other responsibility. <laughs> we just work harder and get paid the same. Yay. <laughs> exactly. Wonderful. <Yep>. Good times. <laughs> Good thing we enjoy yes, what we yeah. do. All right, so that brings us to our new segment. And you guys are going to have to bear with me because it's the first time I've done this. So I'm a little nervous about it just because it's kind of something new that I'm doing. And I'm, I want to see how it goes because I really enjoy the, uh, this sort of thing. And I wanted to kind of bring back some news, but it's going to have a little different spin on it. So what I'm going to do is I'll read this news article and then Megan and I will talk about it. We'll see. Thank you all so much for sticking around for our nursing news segment. Not Necessarily Nursing News is brought to you by Live Well Health. They understand that health insurance as a nurse is complicated, especially if you're a travel nurse or working PRN. Just go to goodnursebadnurse.com today and click the Live Well Health link to let them show you all your options for health insurance and find a plan catered to your needs and budget. That's goodnursebadnurse.com and click the Live Well Health link. So this article is from Gummer Blog, and it is by Palpable Thrill. The title of the article is RT Delivers Five Peeps Via ET Tube in Easter Day Tragedy at St. Luke's. So distracted by his excitement for the Easter holiday, Jim Carina 
respiratory therapist at St. Luke's Medical Center, gave five peeps via ET tube to Robert Harris, an unfortunate 74-year-old patient spending the holiday in the ICU with pneumonia. Mr. Harris required the increased alveolar oxygen exchange that PEEP facilitated, but instead got five delightful fluorescent yellow marshmallow confections known as PEEPs launched into his trachea, thereby preventing the exchange of oxygen whatsoever. I was enjoying my favorite Easter treat, read the order of PEEP 5, felt joy in my heart, and one thing led to another, explained Jim while frantically alternating between yonkering, deep suctioning, and bagging. But Jim's efforts were futile as the tasty treats conglomerated against the trachea wall as unmoving as the faith of believers on this Easter day. And just as the miracle of the resurrection echoes through the hearts of those in celebration, so echoed the overhead page for pulmonologist stat ICU through hospital corridors. Mr. Harris was saved when a bronchoscope plucked out the five scrumptious delights He could not be reached for comment because he had an anoxic brain injury. To prevent further incidents, a multidisciplinary team conducted a root cause analysis that culminated in the mandate that peeps be stored at least eight feet from the ventilator and never more than three feet from the nurse's break room. At press time, clinical embryologist Neil Nate was seen carefully injecting donor sperm into a pink plastic toy egg before tenderly placing it on a Petri dish in the incubator. Well, Megan, I don't know about you, but... This is a sad story, and it's kind of a cautionary tale, though, you know, about eating near ventilators. I understand that sometimes we don't get breaks, and we have to do what we can, snacking when we can, but they're definitely, I feel like we need to just, you know, take a step back and learn from this situation. I mean, eight feet from the break room, I I mean... I would think the break room would be the only place you should eat, but I don't know. I know. it's Sometimes we don't even get to go into the break room yeah. uh, because we don't always get to take our breaks. And I, a lot of times, I will get my hand slapped a few times uh, from people who listen to the podcast. And I, if I say anything about not getting breaks, not going to the bathroom, you know, I'll get invariably get an email from someone who says, you shouldn't be condoning that and glorifying you know, not getting breaks. Um, the problem is... Yeah, it's not that we condone it. It's just, that's the way it is. No, it's a reality. It's just not, I'm not trying to... I mean... Yeah, I don't want yeah. to not take a break. It literally is just something that happens that I don't yeah, have any control over. and my wants to pee, but I'm sorry, somebody's not breathing. So I'm going to have mm-hmm. to handle this before I can actually, you know, go to the bathroom or eat dinner. Yeah, they have to, things have to change from hospital administrations, making changes where you have safer staffing ratios. Maybe you have staff members who are who come in to, to just relieve people for breaks. I mean, I think that that's where the change has to happen. We can't just go and take a break and walk off and leave our yeah. patients. And I love how we always say, like, I've, I've heard this everywhere. We can't staff for what ifs. And I'm like, that's the whole reason the hospitals exist is for what ifs. Mm-hmm. I'm like, that's why we're here. But we have a, barely enough staff for the stuff here. That's a great point, Megan. So, I mean, but, mm-hmm. I don't know. But it's like that everywhere, I think. I know they're a business. I know they want to make money. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of th- factors that go into it. But I also know that there are a lot of people in the hospital making lots and lots more yeah. money than what uh, most of the people like you and I make. Yeah. And I do think that there should be there should be enough to go around. I couldn't imagine what administration and everybody, you know, everybody on salary makes. So, oh yeah. Well, and if you work for a not-for-profit 
organization, and I'm just talking hypothetically, those numbers are listed. Those are are public information. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, it's pretty shocking when you go and look at the numbers and you're just like, (laughs) and you're worried about this? (laughs) Excuse me? I need a respiratory therapist. Oh, my God, I can't breathe now. (laughs) We can't afford to hire anymore. Sorry. So... I'm sorry. You're just going to take care of that yourself. <laughs> Here's a straw. Yeah. <laughs> Drake yourself. I'm waiting on my bonus. <laughs> huh? Well, sorry. I just think that for this story, what, you know, I can kind of, I really can empathize with this respiratory therapist because for one thing, peeps are kind of irresistible. They are. You know, they're peeps. They're also literally the exact same word for this adorable little confectional, yes. confectionate, you know, marshmallowy, yummy treat right. as the amount of, you know, this number that we set on the ventilator that is for end expiratory pressure. Yeah, and five is physiological. So, I mean, that would be mm-hmm. the number. Appropriate. So, yeah. Yes. Would you set a ventilator to less than five? No. Mm-hmm. Of peep? Nope. No, you wouldn't. So it's at least going to be five. Yep. Unless they have like plateau pressures that are in their 40s, which most people don't, mm-hmm. only like 1%. So, yeah. So at least it was the minimum. I mean, what if you've been set to a peep of 14, yeah. which is... Ooh, or 20. We've yeah. been seeing that lately. <laughs> or Oh my goodness, with COVID patients, my goodness, can you imagine? They would have never gotten those marshmallows <laughs> out. Well, I don't know how our first not necessarily nursing news segment went, but I feel like it was fun. And um, you guys have to let me know what you think. So Megan does not have a podcast herself or Mm-mm. doesn't normally do this sort of thing, but you can tell everyone where, they can, where can they find your husband's podcast? Just some podcast. It's on, well, tons of stuff. It's pretty much everywhere you can listen to podcasts. Yeah, just search it and I'm sure. It'll come up. It's... I, isn't it like just some podcast for advanced practice nurses? Yeah, is like yeah. the little but if you, extra line. Yeah. yeah. And then if you just do just some podcast, I mean, it'll, yeah, it should come up on like the pod, like if you have a podcast app, it'll just, yeah, pop up. Yeah. They're really good friends. Yes. And so it's really, it's, it's funny just to listen to them banter back and forth. I enjoyed having them on. Well, thank you, Megan. Thank you. You're welcome. And you guys know you can find us at, uh, you can, first of all, email me if you want to uh, complain about all the stuff I said wrong (laughs) at Tina at goodnursebadnurse.com. And you can find us on Instagram at uh, goodnursebadnurse or Twitter and Facebook at GMBN Podcast. I guess I just also want to remind you guys that even if you're a bad girl or a bad boy, be a good nurse and a good respiratory therapist. (laughs) 